one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is a very special episode, episode 907, for the week of Monday, July 24th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, and I'll tell you, we were having some conversations offline while you were at a very special place that we're going to get into a little later, and I couldn't wait to get the show off off the ground and, and out there because this is going to be something really, really special. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. You're in for a heck of a ride. Oh, this is going to be beyond special. So special that we're going to have to string this out over a few different episodes, but... Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about space news, because we do like to cover what's going on in the space world. Three new members of the Expedition 52 crew will be joining the International Space Station, hopefully by the time this episode airs. They are scheduled to launch on Friday, July 28th, 2017. The crew will be launching aboard the Soyuz MS-05, heading for the ISS with Commander Sergei Ryazinski, ESA astronaut Paolo Nespoli, and NASA astronaut Randy Bresnik. They will be joining the crew members already aboard the ISS, which includes NASA astronauts Peggy Whitson and Jack Fisher, who we'll actually hear a little bit from a little later, and cosmonaut Fyodor Yurchenkin. That will bring the crew back up to six aboard station. Yeah, that's correct, Sawyer. And I believe Peggy Whitson, who's been up there for a little bit, she's due to come back when, I think, in September? I believe so. I believe she'll be taking the ride back shortly thereafter. And just to refresh people's memories, she is now the U.S. record holder for time and space. So hats off to you, Peggy. Thanks a whole lot for what you're doing up there. Appreciate it. Oh, yes. And we've talked to people working in the ISS science community, if you listen back to the CRS-11 episode. And if you hear the people who work on ISS science just saying what an amazing addition she has been to science aboard station what a help she's been, and how having her up there longer has enabled so much more science. It's spectacular. And um, well, while we're talking about some astronauts who have done some amazing work with science aboard Space Station, I think that's a pretty good lead-in to our main topic for this evening, which this past week, which was July 17th through 20th, the 2017 International Space Station Research and Development Conference was held in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., The actual conference itself ran from the 18th through the 20th, with speakers throughout the entire event. Now, we will be focusing on some of the main panels that were talked about coming up in a future episode. But we want to focus on this episode are stories that you won't hear anywhere else. If you watched the live stream of the event, if you followed along on Twitter, these are stories you may have missed or that will have never made it to those locations. 
because we were able to get one-on-one -on -one talks with some of these spectacular people doing great work with the International Space Station. So, hope you'll enjoy these. We will have one panel, of course, and that involves Elon Musk, but we'll save that for a little bit. In the meantime, the first one that we want to talk about involves genes in space. Hang on, let's do it the correct way. Genes in space. <laughs> <laughs> this is a science experiment that's been going on for quite a while, but one of the issues has always been actually getting to study said DNA while it's in orbit. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit about that from two people. The first person that I got to talk to about that was NASA astronaut Kate Rubens. She flew aboard Expedition 4849, in addition to being a NASA astronaut, she is also a molecular biologist who has a PhD, and she is one spectacular person. She was so kind, she was absolutely a pleasure to talk to, and uh, you should hear her passion about all of her experiments that she worked on and the science that she did. You could tell there are some astronauts that do experiments because they have to, and there are some that do it because they love it. Kate Rubens is one of those that, without a doubt, does it because she loves it. And here it is in her own words. So, uh, first off, welcome back to Earth. Thank you very much. Uh, what were your first thoughts coming back now from the station? Um, so, when we actually land in the Soyuz, it's kind of a crazy ride on the way down. Um, you're engulfed in a fireball, and then the parachute opening sequence comes out, and uh, you feel like you're in a, a barrel going over a waterfall. Uh, and then you actually hit the ground, and that's uh, fairly dynamic. So after all that happens and, and the, the capsule stops rolling around, you just sort of think, oh, I'm pretty happy to be alive and happy to be back on the planet. Also, what about the sensory perception first getting out of the Soyuz after almost six months up there? Yeah, so I actually unstrapped myself and then had the SAR forces help lift me out. Um, but once you get out, uh, you actually have to take a while to adapt to 1G. So it feels like getting your sea legs back. It's actually really hard to walk around on Earth for a couple weeks. So... In terms of science on board, first off, what's your background with science? Yeah, so I'm a molecular biologist. I was a principal investigator at the Whitehead Institute at MIT. So I actually ran a lab of researchers. So it was a pretty natural thing to be on board and to be running experiments. I actually felt like I was right at home in science. Were there any experiments that you performed on Earth that you got a chance to do a space version of? Yeah, we did uh, DNA sequencing on Earth. I got a chance to check out the sequencer um, and practice loading the flow cell before I flew. And then uh, I used to do a lot of cell culture experiments on Earth. So we did uh, heart cell culture on board, and that was actually uh, that was pretty neat. It was a lot of the similar techniques that we used, but it was adapted for microgravity. What are some of the impacts of that that you had back on Earth that heart cells yeah. So we're looking at what happens to the heart in space, so we know that the heart gets more spherical. Um, we're trying to address what happens at the cellular level uh, in heart cells and hoping that's actually going to help us understand both the healthy heart as well as the diseased heart by looking at it in this interesting variable of microgravity. Uh, and with the DNA sequencing, how does that work differently in space than it does well, that's one of the questions that we were trying to answer. We didn't really know if it was going to work. This was, uh, this was one of these real quick experiments, a class 1E, that we design and fly within a year. Um, so the idea was, hey, let's send this piece of equipment up there and test it out and see if it even works. So the first, the first hurdle was, does this work? Can we get sequence back out of it? And it actually turns out that the sequence that we get, we get, we get more base pairs and we get slightly higher quality on board, which we're still trying to figure out. Um, but it definitely works, and we were able to do things like completely reassemble the E. coli genome de novo from scratch um, from the, the sequence that we generated on board. Wow. 
Wow, that, that's spectacular. Yes. <laughs> uh, were there any other science experiments in particular that stood out to you or that you enjoyed doing? Or that- yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a whole series of experiments that's actually looking at uh, microbial detection in the water systems. And this is really important on board Space Station because we're in this closed-loop water system, so we're 90% closed-loop. And we need to make sure that we don't have any microbial contamination. So figuring out a way that we can actually test that in real time on board, is, it's really important uh, both for station as well as future exploration. And there's a lot of benefit to being able to do that kind of water testing for systems back on Earth as well to try to determine if they're contaminated or not. So it was like when visiting vehicles came now with all these commercial vehicles coming up and things like that? Yeah, it's definitely, it impacts the schedule. You know, everybody's got to get get ready for the visiting vehicles. It's pretty exciting on board because we do a lot of the robotic operations. So you're actually doing a free flyer capture. Um, But then you open the hatch and the real work begins. We've got to unpack the vehicles. Um, We're usually excited to dig down into them and pull as many experiments off as possible. Sometimes you have things like the cells, which you need to pull off right away because they're temperature controlled. Um, so it's actually a really uh, pretty complicated logistics ballet, and I'm pre- very glad there's like you know hundreds of people on Earth that actually arrange all of that for us. You don't really think about the time-sensitive ones that need to come off. You think of just the juggling fruit and putting everything else over. Yeah, exactly. The the cold ones and the warm ones really get you, and then it's also packing up the vehicles for uh, for SpaceX for Dragon to send those samples home and make sure that they stay cold. How do you determine what makes it back? Because I know probably Melfi and all that, there's so many experiments inside that freezer. How do you determine Yeah, luckily there's some really smart people that keep track of all the samples and tell us which ones to pack. <laughs> what was your experience with EVAs on station? Um, that was that was pretty amazing. I think it's one of the most uh, outrageous things that we do actually in space. Um, so it's it's pretty incredible. Um, you're definitely very focused on the task at hand, so you don't have a whole lot of time to really think about what you're doing until you get back in the airlock and you repressurize. Um, but there's a few minutes here and there where maybe ground is talking and and needs you to stand by, and that's your little moment to look down at the earth and kind of marvel at where you are and what you're actually doing. Were there any difficulties or surprises on any spacewalk that really jump out to you? Because I know you practice for it all the time, but when you get up there... Oh, we sure do. The hardware never works exactly as as you want it to. So we, I mean, we actually have, uh, the crib sheet is is what we call it when we start getting into trouble. And, um, you know, we had bulky connectors, we had connectors that wouldn't disconnect. Uh, So at one point I was in an APFR in a foot restraint. Uh, Jeff was holding on to the connector. We had it tethered to a handrail to provide some more force. And uh, the two of us had this kind of huge cosmic tug-of-war until the connector actually unstuck. So we were pretty excited to uh, to sort of fly back and, and have this thing fly apart because it meant that we could actually get the docking adapter uh, together. But, w- you know, you have you have trouble, and then you call the, the engineers on the ground, and they usually have a lot of the spaceflight hardware laid out in mission control, and they'll real-time look at what they've got and send you up a solution pretty quickly. Nice. So... What's next for you now that you're back from station? So um, I'm actually going to be uh, doing some work on uh, spacewalk, training our new class, uh, getting them uh, all adapted, learning how to do spacewalks in the neutral buoyancy laboratory. It's definitely a steep learning curve, but I'm excited to get these new folks in and, and uh, teach them how to do spacewalks. A huge shout-out once again to NASA astronaut Kate Rubens. Uh, I mean, again, like I was saying, you can hear the passion in everything she talks about. And, uh, you know, it's little logistical things with the science of not just being able to do it, but also, you know, working on getting everything sorted and stored and done correctly so that the science gets sustained. And one of the important things with this is you don't have to bring the experiments home anymore for DNA sequencing is 
you can do it up in space. And she was telling me off microphone that apparently when this experiment was first going on, everybody started crowding around her, even from the Russian side. All the crew members were coming around to see the results come in in real time. Yeah, because I believe, Sawyer, this was, this was a big first for the, for the ISS. Nobody had done anything like this before. And in a way, they were seeing you know, some science history being made, if you will, on, on station. So it was really, really a hallmark moment for, uh, for, the, uh, for the space station. Uh, I'm really glad you, you had a big chance to talk to, to Kate Rubens on this. I remember hearing uh, another astronaut uh, talk about the entry phase for Soyuz and the way the, that, that particular uh, individual whose name escapes me right now, I do apologize, um, he basically described it as a car wreck followed by a bus wreck as far as, as, far as re-entering on, on, on the Soyuz. So I, I immediately shot to that as uh, Kate was describing her re-entry. Yeah, one thing that she said, I've had the I had the amazing pleasure of talking with her a bunch off uh recording as well, and I'll mm-hmm. talk about that in just a second. But the way that she described it as uh whenever they talk about the soft landing in Russia, <laughs> she said for some reason they always use air quotes. Now I get why. Yeah. <laughs> but it, just to get back a little bit too of what she was talking with, with with the science, we 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 saw a couple things that that made my ears perk up a little bit. Seeing what happens to the heart on orbit uh, on a on a cellular level, and uh, and it would be interesting to find out uh, what happens to the heart as as in that mode for a prolonged period of time and of course they're 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 exercising on orbit for what about i think it's about two hours uh, a day but it would be really really interesting to to see what the results of that, that particular experiment were and also to see what applications there may, may be back here on earth in in fighting some some heart disease the other thing too that she mentioned was the uh, microbial detection in water Every every city, every township here in, in the United States tests for microbes in the water and uh, to see if the water is still potable and making sure that there's no problems and so on. So you could, you could actually see how better testing on the International Space Station, trying to find out if your water is still, you know, potable and, and, and good to drink uh, after, you know, going through recycling and Sawyer as we've we've kind of joked over here uh yesterday's coffee is tomorrow's coffee on the on, on the ISS but the idea too is is how how robust is is the filtration system go, going and and trying to find out how it's it's working and so on and these microbial tests help do that but also it does have applications down down here on Earth, and a lot of people, you know, I, I want to bring that back home too because testing water and so on, it's 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 an important important thing. We all, I mean, I have a bottle of water sitting here here next to me, so it's it's kind of important to uh, to make sure that the water is indeed potable and good to drink. The other thing too she mentioned was 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 sort of like the ballet and and between the visiting vehicles and so on, and also. The logistics support that they actually really do need, uh, where people keep track of where these things are on board these spacecraft. Because Sawyer, as as Kate mentioned in the interview, there are things that you really need to get off like now, because they're temperature sensitive. They've got to be put into the correct environment and so on. And there are 
and of course it's the same thing too with the samples that are going back down so there's actually even a ballet for that to try to go ahead and make sure that everything is where it's supposed to be especially when dragon comes back down so i mean it's, wow i mean just just a it, the, the whole interview show was was an eye opener and i want to thank you for getting that and i want to thank uh, kate rubens for spending some time with us really do appreciate it Oh, absolutely. And with those heart cells, I mean, they're studying them. They're growing them in space and seeing how they react just being grown in a microgravity environment. And it's it's amazing research. And we're going to hear more about that in just a second. But again, I do want to give a huge shout out to Kate Rubens, who approached me at the conference first to come up to me to say hi and uh, take a picture. And uh, in addition, then just say that she wanted to have a conversation more and met up with her the next day and we had a spectacular chance to talk and hang out together and um, ratted out her uh, space geek friends as she <laughs> called them over at the Johnson Space Center which is how she'd heard of Talking Space so a uh, huge shout out to all of our listeners at the Johnson Space Center and a big thank you for taking your time even though you work with space all day to continue to listen to us blabber about space for an hour <laughs> yeah amen thanks a lot uh to uh to kate rubens and also thanks a lot to everybody over at the uh the johnson space flight center who's listening to us big tip of the hat thanks absolutely and uh thank you for listening and keep on listening we promise to hopefully keep doing you proud and uh from what kate was saying it sounds like we're doing our best to do so got to keep our game up sir got to keep our game up well then i think this next interview is going to certainly help with that Part of this whole sequencing genes in space is such a unique task. And again, it drew the attention of everybody on the station, and it drew attention from many, many people down here on Earth. So how did that all happen? What applications does it have? And what does this mean for us back here on Earth? It sounds like clickbait, I know, but I was honestly surprised at how many applications this actually has here on Earth and what this allows them to do it. And uh, rather than me explaining that, I'm going to pass this off to the principal investigator for this project, who uh, Kate had talked about how spectacular she was. I had the honor of, after talking to Kate, talking to this woman, and again, I was floored, blown away, and let me just keep, stop bragging and just listen to the interview. It's spectacular. Um, Sarah Wallace, um, PhD. I'm a microbiologist at the NASA Johnson Space Center, and um project manager of the biomolecule sequencer payload and the principal investigator of the genes in space three payload oh wow so what made you decide to try and figure out dna and space as opposed to on the ground so there's um a lot of reasons for me personally as a microbiologist um we have been doing microbiology the same way since the program started um we send up media plates like you would have used in in high school or college and we actually have the astronauts grow the bacteria and the fungi on the iss we have no idea what they are until we get them back on the ground in our lab which is not very efficient when you're trying to you know figure out ways to keep things clean so um, for me the sequencer is a way to be able to on orbit id these contaminants in the environment um, for my colleague um, dr ann burton um, he is in more in the astrobiology realm, and he hopes that this is the version uh, or an early version of some technology that may one day detect life on on another planet. Um, so I kind of bring the let's use this now, and he brings the this could be huge in the future. And then in the meantime, um, we're showing all of this so that researchers can use it. 
to answer their questions. Um, I mean, imagine if they were able to get DNA sequence data about their experiments. They maybe want to change them or they maybe want to, you know, pick a different time point based on real-time data they were getting. Or just do all the analysis up there without having to freeze them and maybe compromise it and bring it back. So there's a lot of applications for this. So what is typically involved with DNA sequencing here on Earth, and what challenges were there recreating that on station? Um, so d usually on Earth, the sequencers are, I mean, the, the ones in my lab are two or three, the size of two or three microwaves. Um, and they're very, very, they involve optics, so they're very vibration sensitive. Um, and they're hugely power hungry, and they're not something we would ever fly to the ISS. Um, and, and it, you know, it takes one of the trained um, molecular biology technicians in my lab, you know, it's over a process of days and hours each day to prepare the DNA to get it in a form that needs to be sequenced. Um, so transitioning all of that to space, of course, had its challenges. Um, what made it easier was the, the minion, um, how small and, and portable it is. And I'll just, since we're, since we're here, you can see why it's a great space flight tool. I mean, that's it. That's the sequencer. That's it. That's, the exact, that's exactly what the one on ISS looks like. I should point out that what she is showing me is about the size of a container that you might get a pen in as a gift. For that, we continue on. So we got it up there, and the first experiment, the biomolecule sequencer, was just to see if DNA can be sequenced. Um, and so we flew DNA that was already in a form, it was already prepped to be sequenced, and as you, you know the history, um, Kate Rubens on August 26th of last year sequenced it, and that made huge headlines. So since then, we've been working on doing all the prep on board, and this is mini-PCR, and this was already up there. This was genes in space, um, and so it was already on board. And so what it does, it amplifies DNA, and then you can also use it as a heat block to, to do enzymatic reactions that we need. So you put these two things together, and you let me apply some enzymes and some pipettes, now that Kate has shown that you can use a pipette to move fluids, and we do it now, and Peggy has successfully already done it on board. She's done all the prep. And next month, what we're going to do, this is the biggest thing ever, um, so I was telling you the astronauts take the microbes, the cultures, mm -hmm. and we send them to Earth. We're going to get one of those samples, and we're going to bring it into our process, and we're going to sequence microbes that were collected and cultured on the ISS, totally unknown. We're going to sequence them and find out what they are. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so how exactly does the sequence process work, then, in this small little system here? Yep. So we are going to... So these are, there's nothing special about these tubes. These are the exact same tubes I use in my lab for PCR. These are standard. And PCR um, stands for? Polymerase chain reaction. And so all you're doing there, you can think of it as a Xerox machine for DNA. Mm -hmm. So you, you make a whole bunch of copies of it. Um, and so we will have um, the astronaut transfer some of the bacterial cells into these tubes, and they'll already have the liquid in them that's needed. And this heats it up, and it busts open those cells. And then it, we automatically go into the PCR to start amplifying the gene that will tell us what bacteria it is. So we can have multiple bacteria in each tube. Um, and we amplify the gene that tells us what type of bacteria. And then we do some pipetting steps. Um, so we have, these are the um, things on board. So we use a pipette and the astronaut will transfer the now amplified DNA into another tube where we'll do another enzymatic reaction to get rid of some of those products that were left over. And then we'll do another enzymatic reaction to put adapters on the DNA that's needed to sequence it and pull it through the, the nanopores in the sequencer. And so it's 
a pretty pretty simple process we've got it down to um, and it's working phenomenal in the lab on the ground so we have complete confidence that it's going to work next month. So what types of bacteria have you or are you planning on being able to look at? Everything. We'll be whatever it is we can we can find it. That's the beauty of this process. We don't have to know what it is, but we'll be able to to amplify it. Um, so what we normally see is things associated with humans. We see you know Staphylococcus, we see Bacillus, we see Micrococcus. We see a lot of a lot of things that we would expect to find. Sometimes we find some things that we're like that shouldn't be in the environment. Must have been doing hygiene in this area. Um, <laughs> and so that's when we, we, we're like, hey, maybe next time you do housekeeping, make sure you clean that area. Um, so to be able to get that data, you know, we'll get the data downlinked right after the, the run. So within hours. So to be able to do that versus a month plus having to have it sit to the ground, do the analysis on the ground, get it all communicated back, um, this will be a much, much more rapid and efficient process. So what are you hoping to possibly find now? Now that you can do it straight in orbit, um, for me, it's it's the ability to to know what those things are. Um, the future, and this is what we did at Nemo this past summer, that I would like to see is that we take a swab and sample the environment and put it directly into this process, and the crew never has to culture the bacteria, so they're never exposed to those huge numbers. If you can see it on a plate, there's trillions and trillions of bacteria there. Versus here on the surface, there might be hundreds or thousands, which is much safer, you know, than. And so that is what I want to see in the future. Also, with that, we will see a lot more diversity in the types of microorganisms that we're finding because now we only are finding what is what will grow on the media that we have on orbit at the temperature on orbit. So we're missing a lot of stuff. It's, it's okay because the things that we're concerned about, the potential pathogens, we'll find through this method. However, there's a lot that we can learn from really seeing what else is there and helping us make sure we're developing a, a healthy microbiome on the ISS. So this is information that will really help us as we go towards exploration. Is there any chance to possibly look at some of the DNA itself and learn about some ones that have grown specifically in orbit yep. and then possibly apply that down here? Yep. And that's that's something that's never been done. No one's ever um, sent a, a, you know samples to orbit and had the, the ground control and just sequenced the genome of both. Um, it's coming, but it hasn't been done yet. So we know that the spaceflight environment is inducing changes and, and mutations most likely. But with the current methods we've been using, we just get the bacteria and we ID them. We don't go into that depth of analysis. So the ability to then, we can hopefully move from this where we're looking at the one gene to start doing some true metagenomic analysis. And that's really exactly what you're saying. It's going to tell us how things are changing, how, how the spaceflight environment is altering things. And that's something we really haven't got too deep into yet. Are there any possible impacts besides learning about how cells are affected for future long-duration space flights, like for you yes. know, spin-off type technologies? Yeah. So this is also, um, I always like to say, you know, I'm a microbiologist and, and my colleague is, is in the astrobiology realm, and so we worry that people think, you know, oh, this is just for microbes. But this could be used if, if there are certain things we know about astronauts' DNA and how it changes. This could be used to monitor those changes. This could be used to, how is an, if, a, if a countermeasure is given, we know that the genome influences the way astronauts respond to certain things in space. If, how are they responding to a certain countermeasure? We could use this technology. 
on Earth, it's the same thing. So right now, this technology is being has been heavily used in in many of the viral outbreaks, Ebola, Zika, they, to rapidly identify. Um, so you can imagine if someone had one of those viruses or didn't, say they didn't have one and they were put into a quarantine area. Well, now they're most likely absolutely going to get it. So if you can do this rapid screening process, which is what they're doing, this it's it's having a huge impact. And then maybe the processes that we're developing for the sample prep to make it much easier and quicker, maybe we can then influence that and, and really even help help make those help make that quicker and help this get to more remote areas. If we can do it in space, surely we can put it in remote areas on Earth, right? Um, with very little power, you don't really need any outside support. You can you can kind of do it all. And so that's that's really what we're working towards. And absolutely that could have benefits on Earth. I think the one piece of the story that most people don't know, um, they've heard about the biomolecule sequencer because they've heard about what Kate did. But this whole thing is called Genes in Space 3 because we're collaborating with them. Um, and I think that that's what I really want people to understand is that NASA understands how important this technology is. So it's not, even though you're not hearing biomolecule sequencer, it is kind of part two. Um, so NASA is really, you know, making sure that we, we use this to its full. So we're still working, we're still doing great things. So I think that's the piece that most people don't know. And that in August, we're going to do this really cool thing for the first time in the history of, of manned spaceflight. So. That's so <laughs> I think so too. I'm, I get emotional if I think about it too much because it's it's kind of like it's been my dream. You know, there's um, the microbiology group has been around since since uh, I mean we've been doing this monitoring since Apollo. We've been doing it the same way since Apollo. So the fact that we're we're looking at this makes me really excited. In case you can't tell, she was starting to get very emotional at the end. She was even tearing up a little bit. She the passion. That she exhibits for this. I mean, I'm sure you could tell just by hearing her voice, but in case you couldn't, uh, the while she was talking, just her facial expression, she was so excited. She loved talking about this. No matter how many times she explained it, she still lit up every time, and that that passion is spectacular. And one thing I do want to point out is the devices that we're talking about. I'll post images in the show notes. Um, but the size of the actual genome sequencer is, if you've ever received a gift of a pen in a box, it, it's about that size, and it just flips open, and you put everything inside it. And then the uh, mini PCR, the actual item for helping to, um, like she said, almost Xerox it, that's about the size of the audio recorder I was using to record this which is not very big. It will fit in a large pocket. Yeah, Sarah, considering that Sarah indicated that back here on Earth in in a lab, these two devices are about, what, the size of, what, two microwaves? Two or three microwaves together, yeah. I mean, this is... I, I You showed me that photograph offline, and my jaw dropped just to see how small these these items are as compared to what they would be here on Earth. And it, it just blows my mind. Also, the interesting thing, too, is if you've ever played with pipettes in, like, biology or chem chemistry lab, the funny thing is you can use pipettes in, in microgravity conditions. I was kind of wondering how that worked because, you know, if you've ever used a pipette and tried to transfer liquids, you know, using a pipette it kind of depends on gravity a little bit but you can use a pipe pipette in microgravity conditions which which also kind of 
blew me away a little bit a little bit too and like they're saying that's new that they only just recently learned that you can use the pipettes for that and obviously that's a major part of this and part of i should say you know the containers that they're using for this dna if you've ever seen pictures of you know people extracting dna in a lab and putting it in a little container those are those exact containers these are not special space hardware containers for it the little plastic tubes you may have heard clinking around on the table as she was showing yeah. them off yeah those are the same ones you get in a lab yeah the the wild part about this too is 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 you want to make sure that the environment is clean. I mean, you are in an enclosed environment, and you're doing these little swabs here, hither, thither, and yon on 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 the ISS, and making sure that the area is clean and and, and so on. And this is this is absolutely a must if we're going to go ahead and maintain a spacecraft or the interior of a spacecraft for any prolonged period of time going out to places like Mars or even beyond. So we're really, really laying the groundwork, if you will. And I almost wanted to ask and find out, because Sawyer, in the interview, you kind of read my mind a little bit. I, I was waiting to hear and saying, huh, what, what is this doing here? We haven't found this over here. And I'm just wondering. <laughs> I almost want to find out what weird things that they've found in there that really shouldn't be there. But the interesting thing, too, was you asked about any kind of application back here on Earth. And again, Sarah Wallace, she mentioned Zika. She mentioned other outbreaks like Ebola, this can help in in this kind of environment and, and help help in, in trying to, to, to isolate things and so on. Every little piece that we do uh, on ISS, any kind of science or any type of basic science eventually makes it makes its way back down here and helps us somehow in in the medical realm, in, in the technology realm somehow. So, you know, don't think that the two are detached. There, there's always an application somehow back here. And usually it's in places that are, that are prone to, to, to stuff like this. Far, far-flowing places where you don't have a lot of power, you don't have a lot of resources sources to deal with. This is a perfect example of how that can, can help, how, how science like this could help in a region like that. So, um, you know, Hats off to uh, to Sarah Wallace. Thanks so much for for spending a lot of time with us. And and gosh darn it, this is something we're going to keep an eye on uh, for future applications and to see how how this experiment keeps going. Um, I think this has some relevance to our conversation, Sawyer. And and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. I found when we were talking here a website called jeansinspace.org. And uh, for anybody that wants to go ahead and take a look at what what this is really really all all about, take a look at the all, look at the website, and uh, it gives you a little bit more of a rundown of, uh, of what's happening over there. Oh yeah, and some of the genes and space stuff they're doing. I mean, it's a spectacular program. We're talking about you know strep and E. coli and these diseases that are you know pretty common but still pretty deadly and pretty you know effective here on earth that we can use this microgravity environment to help learn more about how they work and that's the big thing with this and you know part of it is miniaturizing the technology so we can you know get more of this into remote locations like sarah was talking about and 
part of it is just being able to study these genes and learn about them. Like they said also, you know, seeing what adaptations or if they uh, come up with countermeasures, see if they work or if they don't work on astronauts. Because if it works on them for, you know, say long exposure to high radiation levels or, you know, a closed loop system, things all of which we have back here on Earth, you know, if it works up there, it can work down here. And I mean, I'm just looking at a book that they gave us annual highlights of results from the International Space Station from October 1, 2015 to October 1, 2016. There is 10 pages in the back of just lists of research that has been published as a result of this. And this isn't even descriptions of all of them. This is just the list of them and where to find them. Nine full pages so there's a lot going on up there, and this one is a highlight for sure. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing, Sarah, too, you mentioned, you know, in remote areas. Heck, you don't even have to do that over here. One of the things that uh, Sarah Wallace mentioned was, was Zika, and that impacts <laughs> if you've got mosquitoes living anywhere. And the first place I thought about after coming back was the eastern shore of uh, I mean, the, the Virginia Air Force is just out there in, in droves around the uh, Wallops Island area. Zika's a big deal. I mean, not a lot of people understand that. And if this can help in that fight, even here in the U.S., um, you know, hats off to what they're doing over there. Seriously. Absolutely. I mean, both of them were an absolute pleasure to talk to. Like I'm saying, I'll repeat it again. You can hear the passion in their voices and... It shows through their research, and just listening to them, it, I get excited just thinking about it. It's it's spectacular science, and again, the big thing, the big takeaway from this is, yes, it's great to help us with further future exploration, moon, Mars, beyond, etc., but it's not just about going forward. It's about helping back down here on Earth, and that's why you'll notice in pretty much every interview with scientists, I ask that question of, how does that help us back here on Earth? The spinoffs are big. So part of the International Space Station isn't just about science up there and how it helps on Earth. A large part of that is outreach and getting, you know, more people interested, especially kids, in careers in science, technology, engineering, art, and math as STEAM becomes a thing now. One thing that was done was ham radio, which sounds like an ancient technology of the past, I know, but it's not. And there is ham radio equipment aboard the International Space Station. Now, a group of students got to talk with Jack Fisher aboard the International Space Station, who is a ham radio operator. You'll hear his call sign. He has two call signs, the one in there and K2FSH, custom call sign, because it's Fish, like Fisher, and his name is Two Fish. So rather than me blabbing on about it, what I did was I created a small piece based on the people that were there and uh, in their own words about what this is. ARIS, Amateur Radio on the International Space Station, what it meant to participants that took place in it, and, you know, some of the fun of uh, Jack Fisher up on orbit, because in case you missed our interview with him that we played earlier on, he has a lot of fun with what he does. So here's a little bit about what happened with Amateur Radio aboard the International Space Station, July 20th, 2017, contacting NA1SS. Uh, Frank Bauer. My call sign is KA3HDO, and I'm the ARIS International Chair as well as the Principal Investigator for the ISS HAM payload, which is what's flying on Space Station. Yeah, we just uh, this morning did a contact uh, between astronaut Jack Fisher on the International Space Station and students uh, that are associated with the Tuskegee Airmen Youth and Aviation Program. That's uh, the East Coast chapter of that organization. 
This is all accomplished through ARIS, Amateur Radio on the International Space Station. It will be astronaut Jack Fisher. Uh, you notice he has a call sign KG5FYH. And, um, and you know, every astronaut that uses our equipment, that act, they get their amateur radio license, and they get once they get their call sign, then they, they can either use that or they can use the station call. They will be using the station call NA1SS. That's the space station amateur radio call. NA1SS, this is W6SRJ. Be copy, over. I have you loud and clear. I'm excited to talk to you today, and I'm ready for questions. You know, the contact itself, where we, the students get a 10-minute opportunity to actually talk to the astronauts, is the pinnacle of the overall activity. There's a lot of learning that goes along with that, and learning about science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, ideas, skills, and, uh, and, and space exploration, and amateur radio. We're, you know, this is an amateur radio contact, so we want them to learn about radio, technology, and wireless. What is one of the most important things you learned while at the Air Force Academy? Go Air Force, beat Navy. Over. Amen to that. I learned that personal limits are just temporary. If you work harder, you can extend them and you can keep growing. And since then, I've always tried to push myself and never stop learning and never stop growing. Over. Go Air Force, beat Navy. Joshua Bowman. We went over orbits and learned a lot about how the International Space Station moves. Uh, which led us to understand why we only had 10 minutes and things like that. Amateur radio is a way to learn wireless technologies that are critical for uh, the, the telecommunication industry. And so uh, a lot of people um, that actually are trying to get jobs, the, the uh, individuals that are hiring see ham radio on there, and they know that these are individuals that have hands-on experience of actually... Um, using wireless technologies in a useful way. Are you living your dream and what's next? Over. Absolutely. I am having the time of my life. Uh, for me, it's important to make a difference, so when I get back, I need to find out how to best utilize all these experiences I've had to get uh, humanity into space for good. Over. Samaya Blake. I am not a ham radio operator, but I would uh, appreciate getting my license. I would like that. The other thing to follow up, the other thing relative to ancient technologies, ham radio over the years, starting from the beginning to today, has always been a pioneer in uh, radio and any kind of radio technology. As an example, some of the individuals that are ham radio operators actually uh, developed the digital capabilities that we use in our cell phones today. Some of the things we've done on Space Station and Space Shuttle, ham radio was the first to do things like uplinking video to Space Shuttle. And lots of things we did the first time that others hadn't done. So we're, we're experimenters. That's what we'd like to do. And the other thing we'd like to do is to make sure that when everything else fails, that our communications will work. For Space Station, that's one important piece of this, is that we are also contingency backup for space station communications. What is the future for the International Space Station and human spaceflight in general? Over. Josh, the future is science, 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 and we are also trying to grow the infrastructure for commercial flights so that uh, humanity can explore deeper and gain a permanent foothold in the stars. Over. 
what are some of the challenges you experienced because of prolonged space flight? Over. Well, I think I just really miss my wife. She is my everything. Not much else, though. I think uh, it's been a pretty good transition. Over. For starters, uh, what we are doing right now is literally des developing the next generation hardware that will be interoperable across all of Space Station, which higher power systems so that contacts you had today, which was on our, our, using our equipment on the Russian side, we will have that same capability across several modules on Space Station. And then um, we have uh, video downlink. We want to make that much more useful. So we actually, when you think of ham radio on Space Station, it is multiple modes. So it is voice, which is what everybody hears most of the time. We have downlink videos. We have to, to, today, later today, we're going to be sending pictures down, a set of 12 pictures that people can receive uh, with very simple equipment and actually um, get these from Space Station directly. We have a lot of digital techniques, and uh, what we're going to be doing in the future is actually exploiting not just the voice contact, but also these other digital and, and uh, um, picture-type techniques with students in educational environments. What is one piece of advice you would give to upcoming students who would like a career in the astronautical field? Over. I think if you find what you love and you work really hard at it, if, you're, if your hobby, if your passion is your job, there's just no limits to what you can do. So hard work is really the key. Over. It was, it was awesome. I, I just got all giddy inside. Yeah, definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I've never had the privilege of talking to an astronaut, especially in space, like while he's in space. Hey, Jack, this is uh, KA3HDO. You've got uh, all of the questions, and uh, we thank you. Let's get a big uh, round of applause from the audience. Talk about timing. Sawyer, I'll be honest with you. I'm sitting here, I'm listening to this, and I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of those kids. And I, I am, I would be absolutely gobsmacked today if I, if I were 12 years old and had the opportunity to talk to an astronaut on orbit in real time through you know through the radio you know, what an inspiration and what a moment that must have been for all those kids over there what was the the the, the median age over there Sawyer I mean they were middle to high school students right. they seemed older but um, they all had to go through special training they met up at the airport to learn a little bit about communications and orbits like you heard one of the students talking about, I talked to two magnificently brilliant students and it was only a small snippet of them, but they were absolutely brilliant and, you know, they have bright futures ahead of them. The other thing, too, is I didn't know that ham radio is actually the contingency communications for the International Space Station if all else fails. That, that's something interesting. I didn't know that until tonight. They were talking about one of the future plans, and they've done it before, is when they get rid of old spacesuits to stick ham radio satellites in them. They call them suit sets. And, of course, I'm sure, because I know, Sawyer, you're, you're a ham radio operator. I know that the, 
you know QSL cards are are, are exchanged, and I'm just I'm just thinking about uh, what that QSL card is gonna gonna have that prized uh, that prized place in this particular ham radio operator's collection that they actually had had some time to to talk to the crew on board the International Space Station. And if if anybody's interested, um, I'm looking at the website for for Aris. It's www.ariss.org. Uh, and um, it, it has everything you ever wanted to know about the project and what's going on over there. There's actually a place uh, if if you are so inclined to donate and and see what uh, if you want to keep this project going. I'm just thinking of of what good it does as far as as far as uh, keeping the, the the light going and keeping the next generation interested in 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 science and and mathematics and technology and so on. And Sawyer, you'll you'll agree with me on this since since you you indeed are a ham oper- ham radio operator. I'm just one of these, you know, uh, DXers. The theory that you have to learn to become a ham radio operator is 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 is, is not exactly you know it, it, we're not talking slouch stuff here. Admittedly, to take the test, you get a book with all of the questions and all of the answers ahead of time. You just have to be smart enough to learn it, apply that once you get your license, and you know take it. But uh, uh, important to note, ARIS is 100% run by volunteers and volunteers only. If you'd like to help volunteer your time, they are certainly looking for people to help with that. If not, like Gene mentioned, volunteering donations is a great way to do it. And uh, you were talking about one of those coveted QSO cards when you make contact. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can hear that. That's uh, (laughs) my QSO card. I'm flicking over here, which a huge thank you to the team that was working there to get me a uh, QSO card for assisting with the contact. Any large public group, school group, educational group can apply to do this as well to talk to the station. So check out Amateur Radio on the International Space Station or ARIS for more for sure. And a huge thank you to uh, astronaut Jack Fisher who took the time out for the, the 10 minutes because time is so valuable on the ISS. But went ahead, took a breather, uh, and, uh, and talked to... Uh, the kids uh, back home on Earth. So again, uh, saluting uh, astronaut Jack Fisher. Thanks a lot. And they got all 24 questions in just in the nick of time. As you heard at the end there, that was literally him fading out as he went uh, away from the uh, ground station. As a ham radio operator myself, KC2VRX, I, I I love the hobby. It's I started when I was in seventh grade. There is no age limit to become a ham radio operator. So... Take a look at Becoming Ham. It's a great hobby. And you can talk to the space station with the most basic license, the first license you get, and you get to do things like this. And it's so cool. And uh, thank you again for them to letting me record this and to highlight all of the events with this contact. It was so cool. And thanks, Sawyer, for taking the time and and thinking this uh, a worthy thing to bring to our listeners' attention. This was fun. I appreciate you doing that. Thanks. All right, so now we're going to get into a little bit more of the serious side of things, sort of more into the policy aspect of it, because we like to talk about that kind of stuff here at Talking Space. If you missed last episode, episode 906, we talked about the recreation of the National Space Council, the third iteration, which was signed just about a month ago. We had talked in that discussion about what the Second Space Council really did and what we think the third space council will actually be able to accomplish 
Well, while I was there, I was able to speak to a member of that second National Space Council who had had a lot of work with NASA before that and even some after. And uh, I'm going to let him speak to his experience on the National Space Council and hopefully answer a lot of those questions we raised last episode. And spoiler alert, he does. Your name and title, please. Uh, Courtney Stad, and I uh, do Washington operations for a software company called Tip Technology. So what do you think was the main goal of the Space Council at that time? Space Council, uh, the second iteration, remember the first was chaired by... Uh, LBJ during the Kennedy administration, and after uh, the Johnson administration, uh, the Space Council basically uh, went into storage, and essentially space policy, to the extent there was any, was uh, promoted by uh, offices like the Science Advisors Office. Um, So there was a certain amount of built-up frustration by the time uh, Bush 41 administration came in from uh, the Congress in particular, that there wasn't really a focal point to develop a, uh, a clear, uh, comprehensive, interagency-based uh, space policy covering both the uh, uh, launch area, both in civil, commercial, and, and, uh, and military, as well as other uh, emerging areas such as remote sensing. Uh, we were confronting at that point in the late 80s the transition from government-managed remote sensing satellites to potential commercial. Uh, We had in prospect a space station, and and so we early on were beginning to grapple with the issues associated with public-private partnerships. NASA and the DOD and uh, focusing on its relationship to this new uh, nascent uh, commercial space sector in terms of the government buying services this was all uncharted territory, and that's just a few appetizers of uh, sorts of issues that uh, people felt a space council needed to grapple, not just a space, the science advisor's office, but a dedicated uh, function like the space council. How effective do you think the space council was? Well, it's interesting. Uh, if you talk to people who felt that their issues were either not recognized or they ended up on the losing side, they'll tell you that it was uh, not particularly useful. But I think for those who were on the launch side of the fence, I think you would have found the Space Council was very useful in bringing uh, a multiple diverse set of voices together and putting out a presidential level policy and then working uh, in areas where, where, we deemed, where, where the White House deemed appropriate with Congress in areas like uh, remote sensing Landsat I think that we probably moved the ball more than we might have otherwise. In my area, commercial, as I expressed at the conference during my panel session, I'm quite proud of a couple of policies that we issued, uh, not the least of which in 1991 was the Commercial Space Policy Guidelines. And that laid out the various uh, and sundry roles of the government as a source of R&D in the world of trade, Uh, its regulatory role, so that the private sector had a fairly clear, enunciated uh, view of what what we viewed as the appropriate role of government. And we had, uh, as I mentioned uh, during my session, a baseline definition for what meant commercial. So I think we brought a level of clarity and rationalization uh, that uh, was needed. Uh, We grappled with some um, 
areas that uh, affected national security, such as deregulating high-resolution uh, optical remote sensing. And uh, that was a case where there was a lot of pushback, as you might imagine, by the three-letter agencies to suddenly open up um, the uh, remote sensing world. But I like to think that um, since those debates, and we primarily, I think, pretty much uh, uh, prevailed in 2017, uh, you have companies like Digital Globe and others, Planet and others that are the beneficiaries, and through them, uh, uh, the world is benefiting both in the security and the commercial civil worlds from those decisions. What about with space station freedom turned ISS? Well, that was interesting. Uh, probably our, our biggest, one of our controversies was uh, Bush 41 had early on announced his uh, vision of returning to the moon to stay uh, and, and then using that as the uh, basis for moving on to Mars. And, uh, you know, a commission was set up to help uh, determine what the price tag for that would be and what the uh, suggested uh, methodology for getting there would be. Uh, NASA, of course, uh, was a, played a critical role. And it was a case where the agency had a deaf ear. Um, we, we tried to convey to the agency that uh, when you slice and dice this, you've got to be very price sensitive, um, cost conscious, and ultimately the agency came back and, and briefed the Space Council uh, on a uh, price tag that was uh, breathtaking. Um, and it was very clear to a number of us in the room at the time that there was no way the political system could, uh, could support that. And uh, sure enough, uh, it, it ran into a buzzsaw. Uh, it was an instance where the NASA administrator at the time felt that he could uh, ignore the Space Council because, after all, he reported directly to the president. And he attempted to appeal the situation, and the end result was he got fired. So my hope, my expectation, is that the NASA leadership of today understands there, there can be no air gap between the, uh, their leadership and what they view as the priorities and what the White House Space Council uh, is providing in terms of, of uh, oversight of, of space policy overall. So then for this new Space Council, is that we have to create new policy then, or is this working off of what we had? Well, uh, from my standpoint, um, first and foremost, from a commercial standpoint, the last thing we want is uh, disruption for the sake of disruption. I think there's been a lot of tremendous good work done in both the legislative and executive uh, branch area. and We should be building off of that in terms of sending positive signals to the uh, commercial world. So one of my themes is to the White House Space Council, do no harm. Preserve and protect uh, the, the achievements made to date. Having said that, we still have many open questions in terms of uh, intellectual property issues, in terms of private, private property issues. When a private sector company puts money into a resource, be it the moon or asteroid or whatever, who owns it? Um, those sorts of issues need to be uh, determined. And this is a very busy planet. Since I worked on the Space Council in 91, many, many more countries have entered the space arena. Many, many more, I'd say to order of magnitude, more commercial companies, both here and abroad, have entered the arena. And so I think it's incumbent on the new Space Council to put a uh, strategic policy framework that provides a guiding light 
for those of us in the private sector who are having to contend with the prospect of, uh, of the Chinese and the Russians and others entering the marketplace. That's a reality. They're in the marketplace. Uh, and, and they're uh, supported by their government or subsidies and other things. And how we navigate that world, those realities, uh, is going to be a big determinant in our overall success. So uh, I'm hopeful that uh, the Space Council will help um, uh, provide uh, the new policies and new framework to, uh, uh, that ultimately will allow us to uh, work and in, 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 in interact with, on a commercial basis with these foreign entities, understanding that there are also national security issues we have to take into account. Uh, but, but to me, if they do nothing other than help work through those, those big issues the next couple of years, they will have, uh, from, from my taxpayer standpoint, they will have earned their, their pay. So any other advice for them besides do no harm? Um, I think uh, in terms of staffing um, would be to uh, bring on several more uh, full-time White House people. Don't make it big. I think uh, four or five people, uh, subject experts, full-time White House people should be able to do the job. Um, bring on a few detailees, um, but uh, I think need to reach out, listen to what the universities and the industries and the agencies are contending with, have an ear to the international world, take full advantage of the advisory group that they're forming in terms of populating it with uh, men and women that, that bring uh, important expert perspective. Um, and uh, as I say, don't do anything precipitous. Do something in a very uh, strategic um, and, and uh, collaborative way with the civil, military, and commercial sectors. Uh, and if they do that, uh, and I believe under Scott Pace, the new executive secretary, they've got a, an individual equipped to do that, uh, then I think they'll, they're on their way to a, what I think will be a successful uh, next several years. So I've followed commercial space for 40 years, ups and downs, peaks and valleys. Um, I'm, one of the, I'm of the generation that saw uh, Space Odyssey 2001 when it first came out in the late 60s. And I was hoping, Sawyer, we'd be having this, I would, be, I would have expected this conversation to be on a, uh, you know, on a, on a lunar habitat somewhere or, or wherever. Uh, I'm disappointed that we're uh, still uh, terrestrial bound. But I have to tell you in 2017 that I see lots of signs of optimism. And I think this particular conference, the ISSRD, uh, with the almost 1,000 people have turned up representing a whole diverse set of interests, uh, shows you that this community, this commercial space community in all its diversity, is pursuing some fantastic uh, opportunities. Now, pro profitability remains ever elusive. It's the holy grail. Um, but I see the seeds being laid uh, both through the space station and through other individual space uh, initiatives that tell me that, that uh, the next generation is in for one hell of a ride. We broke on, on this uh, just before Scott Pace was announced to be the executive secretary of the new newly reincarnated Space Council, and that gave me a little bit of, uh, I don't know, that, that kind of put me at ease just a little bit. I think Scott knows what he's doing, and he, he's no stranger to this. I'll agree with Mr. Stott here in that we have, we used to have 
the commercial space launch industry in our hands years ago. And we let it slip out of our hands, uh, in part due to shuttle, in part due to a few other things. But we kind of said goodbye to uh, uh, the boosters. And that came, that started to come back a little bit after the Challenger accident. But we are really, really embracing now the, these launch companies. And I think that is, is going to be a, a huge step going forward. It took me a while to get there. Um, but it, it's, it, I see the, the, I, I see kind of the the genius in, in in the last administration and what they were trying to do to reinvigorate the uh, the commercial launch industry here in the United States. And it it, it took me a little bit of of an evolution to get there, uh, but we got but I got there, and I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing the innovations coming out of SpaceX. I'm seeing. Uh, Orbital ATK developing their own new class of vehicle plus Antares. You know, th- there's a lot going on, and he's absolutely right. I think we do have a have a great future ahead of us. You also brought up a good question too, sir. Do we have to go ahead and reinvent the wheel here? And that's what I was hoping, um, Mr. Stutt would say that we didn't have to have to do that. We should do no harm to the commercial industry here and i i agree with them in, in in that view if it ain't broke don't fix it and right now i don't think it's broken yeah we've got to go ahead and take a look at itar yeah we've got to go ahead and find out how we can get you know other countries on board you know our rockets but um there's that pesky little thing called itar that's sitting out there yes it's we we've had some reforms but i don't know if if it's if it's kind of covers all of this um, the other thing too is, is, is how do you secure mineral rights on the moon? And, you know, there's a huge hurdle to jump over there. Uh, we still have the outer space treaty, uh, that was hammered out in 1967 over at the UN that we have to have to look at. If you're going to go ahead and mine an asteroid, there's got to be a way to go ahead and lay a claim to that region. And we just don't know how to do that yet. So these are the, the challenges that, that the next iteration of the uh, of the Space Council are going to be looking at. Not only that, but to go ahead and take the uh, uh, the NASA Advisory Council and these other, you know, the small bodies assessment groups and things like that and just kind of tie all their findings into a nice neat bow and then give it them to, give them to the president the uh, NAC is is meeting in fact this week and I believe uh, Thursday and Friday they're going to have their 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 huge uh, their huge me- meeting we'll we'll try to see what we can do to to kind of cover that a little bit for us on next time but um, a- again I'm hoping that that the that the administration will take these these folks seriously finally and and kind of really craft a, a a space policy around what these these folks are saying uh whether whether or not that's going to happen you know, fingers crossed but uh i i have to agree with, with stott saying do no harm right now uh, i think think the commercial side of the house is on the right course um is are we on the right course on on the other side of the house uh, I think we're too far along with like trying to go ahead and change, you know, SLS or anything like that, uh, without damaging the program and setting it back years. 
So, uh, uh, Sawyer, I don't know what your thoughts were and what you walked away from, but these are the things that I was thinking of as I was listening to this. Because after the last episode, as someone who was not alive during the first or second iteration of the <laughs> National Space Council, sorry to make anyone feel old out there. Yeah, like me. Um, <laughs> It's just interesting to hear his thoughts on the second one. Again, like, you know, if you were on the winning side, a lot. If you're on the losing side, not a lot. But it sounds like, you know, the basis for commercial space and the idea of opening things up like images of the Earth, like Landsat, which has some very spectacularly famous imagery. And like he was saying how now you can go on Google Earth and see all of these, you know, real-time images and see what the Earth looks like without much interference from three-letter agencies like FBI, CIA, NSA, etc. I mean, people don't think about that as being a National Space Council. It's things like that that I walked away with. And I also walked away with a little more optimism than I had, which I had some optimism, if you remember last episode, for the third iteration. Um, but hearing someone who was on it, you know, have some confidence in it as long as it stays small it sounds like as long as it stays true to like we were talking about do no harm i think i actually feel a lot more optimistic yeah i'm a little bit more confident sawyer as as this goes on and but i'm i'm still cautiously optimistic i don't know what what really the executive branch is going to do to the space program overall i've seen the last one kind of you know, we, we had that uh, whole thing with the second iteration of the Augustine Commission. And in a way, uh, I, I think that kind of rewrote the wheel, if you, if you will, even despite the Augustine Commission. Uh, but um, I think the, 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 the wizardry in, in the whole thing really was to just realign and, and reawaken, if you will, the sleeping commercial launch industry in in this in this country and boy did it reawaken it i'll tell you i appreciate him very much for speaking with us about this about the space council about his time on it and looks to the future and uh, i mean after everything we talked about last episode i think that's a great follow-up yeah agreed and um um again you and i i think we're both on the same page with this we're optimistic we'll see what happens and gosh darn it i'm ready to Hopefully talk about some good stuff coming up, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how it all, all plays out. And also thanks to Mr. Courtney Stott for, uh, for giving us the time. I appreciate it. So we talked a lot about the commercial sector and opening up to that. I mean, of course, the biggest thing was how commercialization is going on with the ISS. We talked earlier even a little bit with Kate Rubens about, you know, all the commercial vehicles coming up to visit and things like that. Of course, there's a lot of talk about commercial orbital ATK was there, Sierra Nevada was there, ULA was there, there was um, a great talk by Robert Bigelow, which we'll be talking about at another time, but the big one, of course, is SpaceX CEO Elon Musk, who gave a lunchtime discussion that was aired online as well as on NASA television in a uh, surprise there. Uh, the discussion was moderated by head of the ISS Science Program, Kirk Shireman, which, by the way, just as a little plug, in August, Talking Space will be getting an exclusive one-on-one -on -one post ISS RDC interview with Kirk Shireman, the head of the International Space Station Program for NASA. So keep tuned with Talking Space, as that is a spectacular interview not to be missed coming up next month. But I digress back to our main topic for now, and that was the discussion with Elon Musk. There were a lot of 
bombshells that came out of this, and there was a lot of nothing that came out of this at the same time. I like to think of Elon Musk as the man who can say in so few words, say so much, leaving you wanting so much more because so little was actually said. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Actually, I followed that. That's scary. <laughs> Holy smokes, you've been around me too long. <laughs> He's a man of mystery, and yet in all of his detail, you still want to find out more. And in Little Questions came out some of the biggest information. And the question with this is, where exactly do we begin? The first thing is an update on basic Falcon 9. We had the first reflight of a dragon capsule, at which he pointed out that this should be hugely celebrated, as this was the first time that a capsule has been reflown and returned back to Earth since Space Shuttle ended in 2011. Um, here is where he sees this going in the future, and uh, we mentioned a little bit about this in previous episodes, but he gave a little more detail into how uh, his crazy ambition is going to work and gave it a timeline. We, we believe we can get to the point where, in, in the not distant future, in fact, probably by, by next year, where the Falcon Agusa can be reflown um, within 24 hours. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and the, key, the key to that is that all you do is inspections um, and um, no hardware is changed, uh, not even the paint. <laughs> so this is very important. Uh, so that, that's our aspiration for, for next year. Um, obviously, while paying very close attention to mission assurance and reliability, um, but we think we've got at least a technical path to, to achieving that. Um, and then the uh, we're, I think we're quite close to being able to recover the, the fairing. Um, so it's a, there's a huge nose cone on the front of uh, Falcon 9, which is a 5.2-meter diameter nose cone. You can fit a, basically a whole sort of uh, city bus in there. And, uh, and, and that, just that, that fairing alone with all of its systems and the acoustic damping and qualification all that and separation system, um, that's about a 5 or $6 million um, piece of equipment, and um, the analogy I use with my team is like, guys, imagine we had, you know, six million dollars in a, a, a pallet of cash, and that was, you know, six million dollars falling through the sky, and would we try to catch it? <laughs> I say we do. I say we give it a shot. You know, worst case, it ends up at the bottom of the ocean. But maybe we do catch it and then pay six million dollars. Let me know when that pallet of cash is coming back. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to give it a shot too. You know, it might as well be a pallet of cash uh, because it costs six million dollars. So, and uh, but I think we, I think we've we got a decent shot of recovering the fairing by the end of the year, um, and and possibly reflight by either late this this year or early next. Um, and that just leaves the uh, the upper stage of the rocket. Uh, upper stage is about 20% uh, of the cost of the mission. Um, so if we get boost stage and, and fairing, we're right around 80% reasonable. And then I think we, for, for a lot of missions, we can even bring the second stage back. Um, so we're going to try to do that. So we've talked about before the uh, idea of 24-hour turnaround, but by next year and having booster recovery and possible reflight by end of year. Yeah, I could see the fairing. Because that's, you know, 
uh, I, and I can almost see, you know, it, it costs, you know, $6 million and all that. that. That is a saving. So if you get the fairing back, fine, great. That's gravy. And you can refly it. My question is this. You're going to do a stem to stern total evaluation engines the whole nine yards to make sure there is no point of failure within 24 hours. I, I and I'm I'm not being facetious. I'm being quite honest. Do we need that kind of service and that kind of turnaround time in the industry currently? I mean, it's impressive if you can do it and do it successfully and do it over and over again. But my other quibble too is that we're not we're dealing with rockets, not FedEx trucks. And I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to look at these things as though they were, you know, just simply, you know, delivery items and, and, and nothing more than that. Rockets are, are interesting. They'll, they'll find a way to bite you. And if you're not too careful and dealing with quality assurance the way you really should be and going through things with a fine-tooth comb, I don't know. I'm curious to see if they can make it work. If they can, hats off to them. But... I, I do have reservations. It's ambitious, I'll say that. Uh, then again, landing it on a barge was ambitious, although the timeline for that was a lot more realistic. I could see this happening. I don't know about this soon. And like you said, yes, there's you know possibly 12 more launches scheduled for this year, and you know they're finally getting their backlog of launches out of the way. Once that backlog is gone, is there going to be a demand to have two launches in two days? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sawyer too. The other thing too, they're going to have the, uh, the the launch facility that they're building out in uh, Boca Chica in uh, in Texas, out there in Brownsville. They're going to have um, the launch facility over at Vandenberg Air Force Base. Uh, launch Complex Forty will be back online soon, and then of course they've got Pad Thirty Nine A where they're the, the where they're going to conduct the. Um, the Falcon Heavy launches and most of the the ones for NASA. So, uh, you know, do do you really need that twenty four hour turnaround? I I don't I don't know. I I I just don't see. I and mean, if they could do it, impressive. But does the market need it? And is it just basically the smart way to do things? That that still remains to be seen. It's definitely going to be worth keeping an eye on. So after that, the next big thing was talking about Dragon 2, better known as Crew Dragon. Uh, one of the big selling points of Crew Dragon that would be helpful for crewed missions, for Mars missions, for everything, was that astronauts would no longer be splashing back down in the ocean under parachute. They would be landing back at a landing zone, possibly back at the launch pad, with a propulsive landing system where it would slow itself down, landing legs would pop out, little jets to help slow it down, and a nice safe landing on legs on land. Well, Elon, is that still the case? Yeah, that was a tough decision. It, it, Dragon is capable of landing, Dragon 2 is capable of landing propulsively, and uh, it, it technically it still, it still is, although it, uh, you'd have to land it on some pretty soft, uh, landing pad because we we've deleted the little legs that pop out of the heat shield, um, but it's technically still capable of doing it. The reason we decided not to pursue that heavily is it would have taken a, a tremendous amount of effort to qualify that um, for uh, for safety, uh, particularly for crew, uh, crew transport. And then uh, there was a time when I thought that 
the Dragon approach to landing on Mars. Um, we've got a base heat shield and side-mounted thrusters would be the right way to land on Mars. But um, now I've, I'm pretty confident that is not the right way um, and that there's a, there's, a, there's a far better approach. Um, and that, that's what the next generation of uh, SpaceX rockets and spacecraft uh, is, is going to do. So just the difficulty of, of, of safely qualifying Dragon for propulsive landing and the fact that um, from a technology evolution standpoint, it, it was no longer in line with what we were confident was the, the, the optimal way to land on Mars. Uh, that's why we are not pursuing it. It could be something that we bring back later, um, but it's, it, it doesn't seem like the right way to apply resources right now. I should say he never really said exactly how it's going to go, whether that does mean parachute on land, parachute on water, or what. It still technically has the capability, but it sounds like no one's going to want to try that uh, soft landing, especially knowing what the Soyuz quote-unquote soft landing is like. Yeah, Sawyer, he was basically hinting that there were some safety concerns for propulsive landings on Dragon, and I'm kind of wondering just exactly what those concerns were as far as the Super Draco engines attached to them and who brought up the uh, the safety concern. The other thing, too, is that we learned that both it looks like, you know, the Red Dragon thing is also gone uh, off the, uh, the it's also off the table. And they're going to be looking at new uh, new ways to deal with with um, uh, Mars, you know, entry, descent and landing. I'm sure we're going to find out more about that come the uh, next IAC, which I believe a modified version of SpaceX's Mars plan is going to be unveiled. So basically, Crew Dragon, or, or Dragon 2 as it's now called, and uh, Boeing CST-100 will have the same you know, splash down in the ocean kind of recovery mode that, uh, that Orion will have. Either way, it probably solves a lot of problems for SpaceX going forward, and it probably is going to be the silver bullet that might get them there uh, at the end of 2018 to go ahead and start launching launching crew. They're talking about possibly a crewed mission, I believe, um, the middle of 2018. I don't know if that's that's been uh, uh, been modified or not. I know Boeing has already said that they're looking toward the end of 2018. There was a July 20th report that NASA released uh, with the current targeted launch dates. SpaceX is going currently for their unmanned test flight February of 2018, with the first crewed flight in June 2018, uh, Starliner CST-100, Boeing has their first unmanned test flight scheduled for June of 2018 as well, and their first crewed flight in August of that same year. Okay, so they're they're also talking they're also talking about a about a summer of 2018 with their first crewed flight. Thank you for thank you for the corrections. It probably solves a lot of problems for SpaceX going forward, and uh, probably cleared as I said probably clears the pathway for for Dragon going forward, and it probably moves them up a few pegs going forward to finally start getting U.S. crew launched from from the Kennedy Space Center. We're talking uh, how many years after? Seven uh, years. Yeah, seven years. It's been the gap has been way too long, and I think NASA sees it, and I think everybody else sees it. I'm sure SpaceX sees it, and they want to be the ones to go ahead and put us on the back on the board again. 
however, Boeing also wants to do that too. So, so we'll we'll see who wins out. But um, I'm sure the propulsive reentry was probably a big deal for them, uh, and and trying to make that work for that first uh, for that first mission, they just couldn't do it. So, um, with that off the table, I think that that's going to make a it's going to make a lot of people breathe a lot e- easier. But it's also going to go ahead. I think might push them ahead exactly and like you mentioned elon also mentioned that his original mars transport plan that he had is not going to happen anywhere near as he described it apparently he looked at the cost of it he looked at the feasibility of it and both of them were way too high and way too low respectively so as a result uh rather than playing the four minute clip we'll summarize it in that uh he did not say exactly what, but there are major changes coming. As you pointed out, Gene, he will be discussing that at the 2017 IAC, uh, which is one year after he announced his initial ambitious plan that he is now retracting and modifying. And uh, I should point out, he did announce that he will be taking questions in advance this year after last year's question debacle. Hopefully this year um, we're going to have Kat Robeson over there at uh, IAC in, uh, in Australia, and uh, we're looking forward to, see, to, to hearing that report and, uh, and seeing what she can, she can uh, dig up for us. But, um, uh, yeah, I believe sort of from what I've heard that, and, and this is, you know, this is, again, um, hearsay as far as this point is concerned i've heard that the the vehicle is going to be far less ambitious the the amount of engines are going to be almost cut in half the vehicle is going to be a lot smaller and i i think they're they're being a little bit more realistic in their expectations going forward for this is it going to happen i don't know i i still i'm still on the fence on on this one but um again i'm going to reserve judgment until uh, until we hear uh, hear Mr. Musk at uh, IAC, um, which is coming up in a couple of months, so looking forward to hearing what Mr. Musk has to say in his modified version. It is certainly going to be interesting, and again, Talking Space will be there for it, so we'll have uh, full coverage on the talk and on what the changes are, especially now that we know they're coming. He previewed them. Listen to this Talking Space get into all the major events this year to help cover all the major news stories. Yep, and we can't wait to bring it all to you. Exactly. Now, one final thing that we haven't talked about yet is Falcon Heavy. We've been talking about it on this program since the end of Shuttle, as it's been in development for quite some time, and it seems to constantly be delayed. Elon Musk, always being the great hype man, made sure to hype up this launch as little as possible. First of all, I should say Falcon Heavy, that requires the simultaneous... uh, Ignition of 27 orbit class engines. Um, There's like, you know, a lot that could go wrong there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I encourage people to come down to the Cape uh, and see the first Falcon Heavy mission. Uh, it's guaranteed to be exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, but it's, you know, this is one of those things that's really difficult to test on the ground. Um, I mean, we can fire the engines on the ground, but um, and we try to simulate the, 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 the dynamics of having 27 instead of nine booster engines um, and the, you know, the airflow as it goes through transonic. Uh, it's like it's going to see heavy transonic buffet. Um, 
the max Q, what has it behave on a max Q. Um, there's a lot of risk associated with Falcon Heavy. Real good chance that that vehicle does not make it to orbit. Um, when I make sure, set expectations accordingly. Um, I hope I hope it makes it past, you know far enough away from the pad that it does not cause pad damage. I would consider even that a win, to be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I, you know I think Falcon Heavy is going to be a great vehicle. Uh, just just like so much that's really impossible to test on the ground, um, and we'll do our best. Um, and uh, yeah, it just ended up being really way, way more difficult than we originally thought. Uh, we were pretty naive about that. Yeah, but I, I, but it, the nice thing is it's, it's uh, yeah, when it on, fully optimized, it's about two and a half times the payload capability of a Falcon 9. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's um, well over 100,000 pounds to, to Leo uh, payload capability, you know, 50 tons, could even get up to a little higher than that if, you know, if optimized. But uh, no question, whoever's on the first flight, you know, brave. Yes. <laughs> brave. So yeah, would you want to be one of those first people going on top of that, possibly to the moon or anything like that, you know, where uh, he's calling you brave, very brave as the response, and uh, just not destroying the pad, you know, before it was, hey, we're going to go up, we're going to try and land on a bar, it's a secondary objective, it's difficult, but it seems plausible, now it's... We're going to try not to blow up the launch pad and call that a success. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he's he's trying to be optimistic. He knows that this is a test flight. He knows that things could go absolutely, you know, south. Uh, we we could have a bad day, and he, he's fully aware of that. He's He's trying to manage expectations of Falcon Heavy, even though we've been talking about it now since its inception in 2012. I, I think really, really he's trying to just manage manage expectations and, and manage the fact that, yeah, this is a test flight. Yeah, this is, you know, a dozen things could go ahead and, and, and not go our way, and, and this could go wrong. And a lot of what Musk was thinking and saying was said at the Antares A1 mission, if I recall exactly when we were there, uh, saying that we just, you know, we don't know. We're hoping for a good day. We're hoping for a good launch. But uh, um, again, this is a test flight. And everybody was trying to manage expectations and if we have a bad day well, well we'll have to go back and go back to the drawing board and find out what what went wrong and go fix it and try it try to go fly again and i think that that's what musk is trying to say and uh, uh the the proof the proof of the pudding will be in the flying in this case uh we'll we'll just have to uh, i believe sawyer we're talking about what november the november december time frame Supposedly, that's what I've heard. Uh, again, that date is always subject to change. Whenever that launches, Talking Space will be there for it, and um, we'll be there to capture whatever Elon Musk defines as success with that launch. Yeah, that's it's con the definition keeps getting broader and broader. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, Sawyer. Any success at this point is good success. It'll be good to finally see Falcon Heavy flying, even if it is only a few feet off the ground. Although we hope it goes farther than that, that's for darn sure. Yes. A great talk by him, and again, we had to highlight that. The 
is the only segment on here that was available to hear elsewhere, but it certainly deserved comment. Everything else, I'd like to thank everyone who talked with us and gave us that one-on-one -on -one interview time or allowed us to record their events, such as the Ham Radio Contact, and just for taking the time to explain what they do and to share their passion with you, the listeners, and myself who was there. And I hope that passion came through, and I hope I was able to convey that well to you. And uh, there's still those panel sessions. There's still a lot that was said in those, and we'll be covering those a little bit later on. But I think that covers plenty for the first part of International Space Station Research and Development Conference, or ISS RDC 2017. Again, thank you to everybody who was at the conference, who organized it. Thank you to NASA, CASIS, the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, AAS, and everyone else that was involved with setting up the conference for allowing press and us as much access as we got. Uh, thank you as well to everybody who interviewed with us. And uh, thank you, Gene McCulka, for joining me tonight. And thank you, Sawyer, for all the hard work you put in on this. Uh, you came back with a lot of goodies and uh, uh, a lot of uh, great news and a lot of great uh, happenings. And, and gosh darn it, I'm still thinking about uh, those young ham, ham radio operators and, and having the opportunity to talk in real time with an astronaut on orbit. Just getting that, wow, I'm still stunned by that. That is just, that is just too cool. Um, thanks to uh, Kate Rubens and uh, Sarah Wallace for the time they, they spent with you, with you there, Sawyer. And and thanks for uh, getting their story up because that was that was some amazing stuff over there. Oh yes, there's a lot of amazing stuff in this episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, again, we'll have more snippets from it as we continue on. And of course, that upcoming interview with Kurt Shireman, the head of the International Space Station program. We've spoken with Mike Suffordini when he was the head of the ISS program, and now NASA's kind enough to offer us an exclusive chance to speak with him after the International Space Station Conference about the state of the ISS and its future. So stay tuned, listen for that. It's going to be spectacular, and along with all the other clips that we have coming for you. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us for this episode, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm -hmm.